Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we're going to have a great episode with John Stallone. Before we get to that episode, I want to remind you that Western Hunter Magazine is doing their $1,500 Swarovski credit. And that uh, email, they've been gathering email addresses. And at the end of this month, they're going to have their drawing for the $1,500 credit towards any Swarovski product. All you have to do is go to westernhunter.net forward slash jscott. That's all one word, lowercase, jscott, J-A-Y-S-C-O-T-T. Enter your email address and you'll be entered into the drawing to win the $1,500 Swarovski credit. I want to thank you guys, my listeners, for all your avid support. And I really appreciate all the feedback that I get through my email at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. All the comments on my Instagram, Facebook, and uh and uh, phone calls and text messages that I get. Uh, I'm going to do my best to keep the uh, content of this podcast great and uh, push through this summer as we're moving into the 2016 fall hunting season. So I just thank you for all the support. Uh, Make sure to follow along on our Instagram and make sure to check out our YouTube channel uh, at J. Scott Outdoors and then J. Scott Outdoors uh, YouTube channel. I want to thank GoHunt.com Insider for their title sponsorship of this podcast. They've been with me since the beginning. I would also like to thank the Outdoorsman's Wilderness Athlete, Elk Hunter and Western Hunter Magazines, Utah Hydrographics, and Phonescope. Make sure throughout this podcast you'll hear uh, commercials from these different companies. And make sure you use the J. Scott promo code. Uh, to receive the discounts from these fine companies and support them. I get a lot of feedback from my sponsors uh, with with all the support that, that you guys do give them, and it's uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, you'll find these companies are, are the best companies in the world. So, guys, let's get right to this episode with John Stallone. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have John Stallone, and John is actually from Arizona, or lives in Arizona, not too far from me. Um, I have not actually met John face-to-face, but I'm anxious to have John on the podcast today. John, how you doing? I'm great, Jay. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, John, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of an in- introduction on yourself and your background in uh, hunting and, and uh, that sort of thing? Do you want the uh, short version or the long version? Because we could put your no. listeners to sleep if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take either. Um, no, but seriously, uh, I've been doing this for a long time, uh, and I wear a lot of hats and I'm involved in a lot of different aspects of hunting and got my hand in a bunch of different companies and stuff. So, um, I started hunting at a very, very young age, probably, uh, about five years old is what my dad tells me. And I got some pictures of me, my dad at that age. Um, and I've pretty much hunted every year since, uh, and I've been doing it professionally for the last 16, 17 years or so. Um, you know, where are you from, John? Uh, originally from Brooklyn, believe it or not. So, but I've been living in Scottsdale since 1991. So I've lived here longer than I lived there. Okay. So, you know, okay. um, and- you know, I'm a father of three a husband. I'm the marketing director for the hunting channel online. 
I'm the digital marketing manager for the OutdoorInsiders.com. I'm national shooting staff for several different companies. Uh, I've written for a number of different publications. I've authored a few books. I'm a certified wildlife manager, filmmaker, amateur boyer, and uh, of course I have my TV show, Days in the Wild. Awesome, awesome. And uh, do you got any hunts that you're looking forward to that are that you've drawn, or or what do you have on your agenda here for uh, the fall yeah. coming up? So far on the books, um, I'm going to start off in California in July for blacktail. Um, then I may uh, do a little Arizona black bear here in August. Um, then I have a um, <clears throat> excuse me an archery mule deer tag in uh, Utah, so that too will be in August early season. And then beginning part of September, I'll be in Wyoming hunting muleys and antelope, and uh, Mid to late September, be in Montana hunting elk, and then I'll be in New York in October for whitetail. I come back here to Arizona. I have that late season archery tag, a 5B tag, which should be interesting. I don't. I'm not even quite sure why I put in for it, but I put in for it. Um, archery elk or archery? Yeah, deer? archery elk. Um, gotcha. Yeah, I got that late bull, that late archery bull. I actually had that tag, not the five B. I had seven East in 2011, and I and I got one, uh, but it was a tough, tough hunt. And I don't know, seven East is a little easier to glass, I think. Five B, I can't even. I haven't been in five B in a long time. I I shot my first three cows in five B North, um, you know, during early season many many moons ago. Um, but I can't remember. I haven't been in that unit in a long time. I really can't remember if where where the glassing is and where it even where it even starts. So I got I got to get out there and do some scouting for sure. But um, and then uh, John, what brought you from New York uh, to Arizona? Um, my dad just wanted to seek a better quality of life for us. Um, cost of living in New York was ridiculous. Things are just not going as well. You know, that time, um, although things have kind of changed a little bit over there, I think the quality of life's a little bit better now, but this cost of living is ridiculous. I mean, we were paying then in 91, $7,000 a year in property tax. And, you know, over here, if we pay, you know, 1500 or 3000 maybe. Uh, and that's now, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. you know, stuff like that. Just to just get it, get us out of the city well, and, Actually, at the time, I lived in Long Island, so I lived in the suburbs. But um, how 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 old were you when you moved from the Bronx? Uh, or from I was Brooklyn. You said. Yeah, I was uh, just about to turn sixteen, so I came yeah. here when I was in high school. Went to Saguaro in Scottsdale. Yeah. So. Gotcha. So you're you're a saber cat. Yep. I am. Right on. Did you um, then? Where did you go to college after your high school? Um, well, I did my undergrad at uh, Grand Canyon University. Um, I studied to become a physical therapist, and then um, I did that for a little bit and uh, got back into the family business, which is construction. And then somewhere along the line, I went back and got my master's in uh, from Colorado State University in rangeland management and ecology. Interesting. Did you know that I went to Grand Canyon for three years? No, I didn't know that. I, it's 
I was there in, uh, let's see, 92, 93, 94. So uh, basically the three years before I got there, as I got there in 94. Yeah. 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 So it's okay. kind of a small world. I didn't know that about you. <laughs> That's funny. It, and I didn't know you It's crazy big now. It's crazy big now, that school. It used to be a little, little, you know, little school, real private and real intimate. Now it's just like one of the biggest universities. It's giant. So. You know, I went to a concert, a Christian music concert with my wife. And uh, we've actually gone to several. And, you know, obviously the new, the new, the, it's not new, but it's new to me, the new, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, arena or auditorium or where uh-huh. they play basketball. You know, it's amazing to think that that little school, I mean, I can remember going to some classes in like modular, like like yep. literally like <laughs> mobile classrooms. Like that, trailers, <laughs> exactly. Like trailers. And, yep. uh, you know, some of the old brick buildings and, um, yeah, it's, it's just, I guess it, we're aging ourselves, but uh, it's great to see how far – uh, they've come down there and building that campus out. And, you know, I think, uh, Jerry Colangelo has had a lot, I think he's in, been involved with that school and, yeah. um, yeah, he's a lot of other graduation. people. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, that's a small world. And I live in Scottsdale, uh, nine months out of the year. And, uh, I thought you lived in Chandler or Gilbert and sounds like you live in Scottsdale. So it, it's, yeah. uh, the next crazy thing is we're probably going to find out we live in the same subdivision. Oh, <laughs> uh, pretty pretty close, I think. Pretty close, I think. So well, yeah, and I've been living over here for in the same area pretty much since I moved here. Not too far from my parents' house. Gotcha. And you hunt. What would you say you primarily hunt? Like, if you had to, you know, rope yourself into one category, what would you say you are? I re- I really can't. I'd be honest with you. Um, I mean, I cut my teeth on whitetail. Uh, I mean, I was probably for the longest time most known for whitetail hunting. But I've, you know, I've been a Western game hunter since since I moved out here '91, so for 25 years or whatever. And you know, I hunt everything. I, I don't have one specific thing that I love more than the next. I mean, I guess if somebody put a gun to my head and said, you got to pick one, I'd probably pick elk, but just because they're, you know, the the grandness of it all and, and the bugling and the whole nine. But, I mean, I hunt muleys, I hunt whitetail, I hunt, I mean, I hunted an ibex last year, I hunted Barbary sheep. I, I mean, I go everywhere. I'm, and that's kind of, I think that's kind of what my claim to fame is, that I'm, um, jack-of-all-trades you kind of throw me anywhere and i'll figure it out and make it happen somehow how did you well first of all my wife always laughs when people ask me the question because she'll just say whatever season it is so i I, it sounds like we have that in common um (laughs) how was the transition for you obviously when you're 16 and you moved to arizona but having started hunting when you were five um how was that learning curve uh, going from what I would say is, you know, hunting in New York and lots of timber and, you know, dark, dark timber and a lot of green to as open as it was. Uh, did you have a fairly steep learning curve or tell me about uh, kind yeah. of some of your first hunts and some of your first thoughts coming out west? So, I mean, pretty much most of my hunting has been self-taught, even though my family, my dad and my uncles hunt, hunted, uh, you know, 
coming from back east, the the idea of hunting is put on a red jumpsuit, sit underneath a tree, and wait for a deer to come by. Not even sit in a tree. So we didn't even use tree stands, you know. Um, and and you know, so coming out here, I guess the probably the first eight or nine years, I I still hunted. You know, I just walked slowly and stopped and looked, walked slowly, stopped and looked. And, you know, I had some success. um, And it it was a little frustrating for me because I, you know, I didn't get the whole glassing and stalking thing until probably I was in my early 20s, I'd say, or, you know, mid-20s. I had, I I was fortunate enough to meet uh, a couple good friends of mine uh, now, um, Doug and Howard, Spicer, um, who live in Tucson, and, you know, they kind of taught me how to hunt coos deer, and they took me coos deer hunting for the first time, and that's kind of where I picked up the whole, you know, glass and stock game, and, and, and actually, I got I got even luckier, because I had one of the best hunters in the, in the or the less, best Western hunters in the, in the country, Dwayne Adams, kind of took me underneath his wing, um, I, I don't know, in my, in my late 20s, and uh, for three years, he took me hunting, and taught me how to glass better and how to be better, you know. I've always kind of been a student, so um, I, I, I kind of pick up whatever I can wherever I go, you know. I've always kind of surrounded myself with people who know better than me so that I could become better. What is it, in your opinion, about coos deer hunting and, you know, you mentioned guys taking you coos deer hunting. In my opinion, guys that, that learn how to coos deer hunt effectively – and efficiently can pretty much go hunt in my opinion go hunt anything around the world and I agree some of the best hunters that I know are coos deer hunters what, I, what I do, agree what do you think it is about that that lets me form my opinion and your opinion that that are similar well besides the fact that the coos are a very worthy adversary so to speak they're a very tough animal very cagey uh, very elusive hard to find uh it really incorporates all the major you have to all the major tactics that you need to be successful everywhere else you need to be you know really good at glassing um you need to be great at picking a spot and planning a route for the stock um you know you need you need to be sneaky you need to you know it's just it has all those components that make up a guy that's successful everywhere and yeah, I agree. I mean, I've I've told I tell people all the time because I travel all over the place in, in North America, and I was you know I'll match a really good Arizona coos deer hunter against pretty much anybody, and um, you know they'll be able to to go toe to toe with them because it's just that you know that type of hunt that that draws that out of you. You have to be all these things for you to be consistently good, um, especially with the bow, you know. Um, I've had the opportunity to take a few with my bow. Um, rifle hunting is a little different. I mean, you still have to find them. You still have to, you know, there's still that all involved. But, uh, you know, if you can shoot five, 600 yards, they're not terribly hard to get close to at that range. But, um, you know, but you shorten that up under 100 yards, you're, you're, you're looking for one of the biggest, biggest challenges, I think. So, I think one of the things that makes it the biggest challenge is the actual terrain, the actual dirt that you're walking on and, mm-hmm. and the, 
you know, the, the soil and the fact that, you know, it's loud, everything yep. about it is loud. And, um, those deer are so wary and they're, you know, they're so used to lions, you know, sneaking up on them and, you know, they're, they're always on alert. Um, you know, I, I think for me, one of the things that makes coos deer hunters in, in my book a little bit special is the fact that, you know, sometimes those deer can be right in the middle of your, you know, field of view at 500 yards and you look away for a second, you know, get something out of your pack, you you know, and basically just put your eyes back in your binos and you're thinking they're gone. And you think, well, maybe they bedded down and you keep staring and all of a sudden you just see an ear flick and they're standing there motionless and they're standing there the whole time. And so I think, I think it makes hunters, you know, guys that hunt coos deer, I think it makes them more aware um, and a little more keen uh, just on, on, you know, trying to be detail oriented and, and trying to slow down a lot of times and, uh, be precise, uh, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, John, what would you say, you know, if you had to put your hunting in a percentage box, you know, X a percentage is rifle hunting, X percentage archery, what would you say on a personal level? Uh, you know, how does that rate with you? Um, well, in the last few years, I've kind of gone i've been doing a little bit more rifle hunting uh i've kind of refound the love for it so but it's still probably 90 percent archery 10 percent rifle and in, gotcha. in years past it was pretty much all i like i like loaded the rifle for a while <laughs> i but uh i kind of refound a passion for it i've started enjoying it again um mainly because i i kind of hunt I kind of bow hunt with my rifle now. I, I still try to slip in, you know, within a hundred yards or so to make it happen. Yeah. I do that I, every time I, I, I shot a Barbary 585 in February, so I don't do it all the time, but when I can, I do. So. Yeah. Let's take a quick break here. Gohunt.com Insider is by far the most valuable tool a Western hunter could give themselves. GoHunt.com Insider are the industry leaders and number one source for Western hunting for a lot of reasons. GoHunt.com Insider have changed the game for how hunts and hunting information are found. Within a matter of minutes using filtering 2.0, you'll be able to filter by state, species, residency, odds of drawing a tag, specific hunting dates, and harvest success percentages to find the hunts that fit exactly what you're looking for. If you are a guy that applies across the West or just in your home state but want to find some new opportunity, there's no better way to do it than using GoHunt.com Insider. As an exclusive offer to my listeners, if you sign up for a GoHunt.com Insider membership for $149 a year and use the promo code JSCOTT, at checkout, you'll receive a $50 Kuyu gift card. Head on over to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and get yourself the most valuable membership a hunter could have. You know what's interesting, John? Uh, Dara and I have done some hunting with our friend Randy Ulmer, and um, he kind of gives me a hard time at, at times because he says, you know, you're a rifle hunter, but you're a bow hunter at heart. And I kind of take that as a compliment um, because I do rifle hunt, I do archery hunt, I'll hunt with whatever, you know, my tag or whatever the season calls for. 
Right. Um, but I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to, you, you know, hearing that you kind of chuckled, um, you know, being a rifle hunter, but being a bow hunter at heart or thinking like a bow hunter. What do you think about that? Yeah. Um, well, you know what? I got a good story that kind of fits with you. So I was uh, hunting with a buddy of mine who is primarily almost 100% a rifle hunter. And we were sitting, and he was helping me glass, and we found a buck, a coos buck and down, down south. And we were sitting on this buck at 440 yards waiting for him to sit, stand up, and it was getting cold. I, I had shed off all my clothing, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I'm getting like, because I know if I had a bow in my hand, I'd be going up the hill. He's bedded down. I'm going to go sneak up on him, bedded down, and I'm going to go try, try to shoot him, you know? And, you know, I'm just having this conversation. He's like, oh, just just relax, relax. He's going to stand up. And you know what? I'm like, dude, I'm going. I put the ear set in my head, and I, I ran up the hill, snuck over the top, got in within 100 yards of him, and, and, and shot him. He happened just to stand up out of his bed right when I got there. But, you know, I would have shot him right in his bed. And I, I just it's part of that's a little bit of impatience, but for me, I mean, there, the opera, I see the opportunity through the bow hunter's eyes. I don't see it. Like, so for me, I was like, Oh, that's perfect. Perfect scenario. He's sitting underneath the ledge. I could come over the top of that rock and draw down on him and shoot him, you know? And, uh, I, I just think you, you plan everything. You look at everything differently. Um, Hunter than you do as a rifle hunter. Um, I don't know. It's yeah. I mean, that's about I, the best I way I can describe it. It's just you, you see things differently. You, you you look at the terrain differently, as opposed to uh, I don't know. I, I shouldn't say that because I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, you know, take anything away. No, but I know what you mean. I mean, I I think it's one of those things that when you when you do hunt with a bow and you have to get much much closer, you tend to take and break everything down as far as, you know, not just trying to get, you know, 350 or 400 yards away uh, and being able to shoot across a canyon. You're now planning your route, planning your attack, planning your stock, figuring which way, you know, the wind's going, figuring, you know, how do I need to approach this? And I, I think it, if, if guys that just hunt with a rifle – can and let's say they want to get better at their craft Mm -hmm. um i think if they can take that bow hunting mentality and try and take all of those and not that rifle hunters don't but some don't i mean let's face it i've I've hunted you've hunted with guys that you know they just don't take any of that into consideration but guys that want to get better at what they do in my mind have to be more aware of their surroundings and i think bow hunters are very aware of their surroundings because they have no chance unless, you know, they get inside that hundred or 50 or 30 or whatever distance that, you know, that they're comfortable with. So, you know, I I think a tip that I give a lot of people at times is, you know, to to try and take all the variables, not just there's an animal, let's go, you know, try and plan out, okay, where might that animal bed? Okay, where might he, if he beds, where is he going to, you know, which way is he going to go when he gets up to start feeding? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where are the does or where are the cows? Um, you know, where where are the places where this animal, if, if he does, uh, you know, 
notice that I'm there or catch me, uh, where is, where's his escape route? And, um, you know, I think that, that could make, uh, if, if people take more of that into consideration, I think it just make them that much better of a hunter. For sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. John, as a archer, um, what kind of equipment, um, are you using and why? Well, um, I mean, I've been, I've been shooting Matthews for forever. Um, I, let me do this. I'm going to tell you the why and not give you a list of what equipment I use. Um, everything I use, every sponsor I have is something that I believe in. Um, I do things differently than most. Um, you'll find in this industry to make money, you kind of got to be like willing to sell your soul and be a walking billboard. Uh, I know too many guys that flip from company to company just because they're following the money and, you know, as a business, you kind of have to do it that way, but I've never done that. And in my eyes, there's nobody who pays me enough to be at a deficit on the mountain. So I'm not going to use a product that's going to hurt my hunting. Um, so, you know, everything that I use, I kind of used them first, found that I liked them and then went after them and said, Hey, you know, show me the money or, you know, can I be on your prospect or, or, or whatever? Um, so, but if it's important to the listeners to see what my gear list is, you could go to my outdoorinsiders.com page and uh, check out my gear lists or, uh, you know, go to johnstallone.com and check out my sponsor page. But, you know, my main guys are Matthews, Goldtip, and Schwacker as far as uh, the archery bow setup. But, uh, you know, I use uh, Saguaros for binos and, you know, I – bunch of different other products and companies out there that I work with but how not. many how many pounds do you how many pounds do you pull on your bow um most of my bows are 70 um I do have a an 80 pound Matthews wake but uh I kind of What was re- that for? What were you using that for? Well, I was hoping to go buffalo hunting um last year and it didn't pan out. Uh, but I did, I took it, I took it with me to South Dakota on my, uh, mule deer hunt, <clears throat> excuse me, because knowing that, uh, South Dakota, we'd be hunting the badlands and it's kind of meets up with open prairie and it's kind of longer shots. And I just wanted to, you know, stack the odds in my favor and have a faster, heavier bow with, you know, a little bit better range and whatever. And, um, so I, but I ended up taking a whitetail on that trip. I went there specifically to get a mule deer and couldn't find one that was older than three years old. Um, just, it was just miserable. And I kept seeing good whitetail, you know, occupying the same terrain. And we caught one following the trail of some does that we saw going down to a creek bottom and we made a three mile sprint to cut him off. And I shot him at 90 yards with that bow. It was, uh. It was a fun hunt, but uh, I was disappointed that I get a mule deer once again. So, when it comes to accuracy or speed, where where do you? What's your opinion on that topic as far as archery, and where do you fall in line with with the way you shoot or or the equipment that you shoot? There's. I'll take your take on that. I'll take accuracy and shootability over speed any day. Um, and I'm not going to mention the company. I'm not bashing anybody, but there's companies out there that 
that are just hell-bent on speed, and you go and shoot the bow, it's just not forgiving. It's not, you know, it, it, it doesn't go exactly where you want it to go. And, I mean, there's guys, there's exceptions to the rules. There's guys I know, one of the greatest shooters in the world actually shoots that company. But, um, you know, for me, um, I, I, it's all about shot placement and accuracy, and I'd rather have a much better shooting bow than it be super fast. I mean, I like speed too. Everybody likes speed, but, you know, speed helps you in, in, in yardage and it helps you, you know, if you've ever been a 3d shooter and stuff like that, which, you know, calculates down to hunting as well, judging yardage when you don't have the chance to pull out your rangefinder or whatever, you know, it's nice to have speed. Um, you get less less ducking of arrows with speed, but it's not the uh, it's not the end all. I think well rounded bows are more uh, desirable than single sided. For, for someone out there that's just getting into archery, what advice do you give them as far as trying to pick out a bow, a hunting bow? Um, that's going to work for them. And let's say that this person, you know, is getting into archery, but not someone that's, you know, going to shoot 3D uh, all the time and, you know, shoot every day, but just a, you know, someone that's just going to get into the sport of archery and, and hunt with that, maybe hunt some deer, hunt some elk with their bow. What advice do you give them? My advice is if you got the money for a Pinto, but you really want to buy the Ferrari, eventually you're going to find out that you want to buy the, you're going to want to buy the Ferrari and you're going to go through the Pinto, the Ford, the Mercedes, the BMW, and then you're going to get to the Ferrari anyway. Is save your money until you can spend the best. Because, I mean, really, equipment nowadays, you, I mean, you get what you, what you pay for. I mean, I, and I look at it in optics. I look at it in, in you know, arrows. I look at it in, in bows and rifles. You know, if you buy a $200 box bow, yeah, it'll shoot well for you. It'll shoot, hell, it's going to be a lot better than the bows I started out with in, in the 80s. Um, and But if you get into it and you really like it, you're going to want to buy it, and you just spent $300 on, you know. So it might it might just be smarter just to step back, set a goal, save your money, and then buy the best of what you can buy within your means, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's good advice. Um, John, you do a lot of, uh, uh, out of state hunts, um, and you do a lot of DIY hunts. Would you consider yourself strictly DIY or where do you fall on that? Category? No, I'm not strictly DIY, you know, do it yourself or I, um, I do go here, here and there, um, Guided. I have a lot of friends who are guides throughout the nation. Uh, I've done a, uh, a lot of marketing and stuff like that for companies and, you know, met a lot of people. So um, for the most part, I would say I'm 90% do-it-yourself. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a, every once in a while I, I get invited to go on a guided hunt or, or at least a private land or, you know, semi-guided type deal. Um you know, I know a lot of guys out there just kind of like, you know, look down their nose at guided hunts and all that stuff. But I mean, I, I think, I think it's a great thing. I think if you're going to 
especially whether you're a seasoned hunter or not, but if you're going to a new area, I think it's a great idea to, you know, hire a guy like yourself and, you know, just, uh, and learn from somebody who knows better than you and, and, and have a good experience and just, you know, take it for what it is. And then, yeah, I mean, maybe next time try it on your own. You know, I did that a lot in my early years. I, I, I go on a guided hunt and, you know, I'd learn, not necessarily learn the area or learn the, you know, the unit or whatever, but I would learn their tactics. And then, you know, I'd come back a year later and go to a different spot because I never wanted to trample on, you know, on their areas and, uh, you know, and just apply those tactics and stuff. So it just makes you a better hunter. But, um, you know, I do like, I do take satisfaction and I do like to do things on my own when I can. Yeah. I always struggle, you know, being a guide and an outfitter myself and doing a lot of hunts uh, that I've done over the years, doing a lot of hunts on my own. I, I, I struggle a lot with the term DIY um, in a lot of different aspects. One of the aspects is how often do you ever go on a hunt where you never talk to anybody, you never do any pre, you know, calling any, any local biologist, any forest service, any, you know, anybody where you just show up in an area, you know nothing about it and you go hunt. If people are, are honest with themselves, the reality is they are probably not just going to show up cold turkey. No. Maybe there's some out there and, you know, my hat's off to them, but then comes the term do it yourself. Well, you know, maybe you didn't actually hire a guide and an outfitter to haul you around in the woods and, you know, cook for you and do all the different things that guides do. Mm-hmm. But you talk to everybody under the sun and you've, you know, you've basically done all your homework. Well, that's, I mean, in my mind, that's not technically do it yourself. I, I think it's going unguided. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I agree. we could we could go on and on and on about it. But it sometimes it bothers me a little bit being a guide and outfitter and knowing a lot of guides like you do um, all over the nation uh, who, you know, live and breathe this stuff. And, you know, I think sometimes guides and outfitters, get a bad rap and you know i think there's a whole crowd out there that's you know i'm diy exclusive and i want to you know kind of want to say guys we're all hunters there's no reason to get fragmented and um you know i i I think a lot of times if if people's pocketbook i mean when it when it really comes down to it i think and we're really all being honest Mm -hmm. i think a lot of it comes down to guys pocketbook i think if if yeah. you have more resources, I think you're going to, you're going to, you know, buy trespass fees and you're going to, you know, hire guides and outfitters. And, uh, you know, if you don't, uh, have a big pocketbook or, or you don't, you know, place a lot of value on going guided, um, you know, then, then I think, uh, you know, without getting into it too much, I just, I just think there's a little bit of hypocrisy out there. Oh yeah. Um, you know, with guys say, Oh, I'm all DIY. Well, you know, either you don't place enough value in going to a new area and, you know, not being able to scout and being able to hire a guide who, you know, knows all the trails, knows all the access points, uh, you know, knows how to get around on the mountain. Um, so anyway, I was just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I mean, 
I kind of, I want to shake people sometimes. I just want to grab them and shake them because of all the uh, hunter on hunter hate out there, you know, um, about do-it-yourselfers, about the trad guys versus the compound guys, the rifle guys versus the archery guys. It's just, it's kind of, uh, you know, it kind of falls into that same deal there. It's just, it, it really drives me nuts because if we were a unified uh, group, like like our adversaries, like the antis, you know, we'd be a lot better off. But we fight with each other so much about stupid things. You know, who shoots this bow, who shoots that bow, who wears this camo. You know, it's really yeah. ridiculous. And, you know, the, 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 it's the same thing with this do-it-yourself hunter versus the guy who goes guided or semi-guided or who asks for help. It's yeah. it's the the whole do it yourself thing is it's all ego, you know. In my opinion, I think yeah. it goes back to why I think people don't, even though they know they need help, they don't want to ask for help. And it's I don't know that that yeah. we could spend two hours talking about that. You want to get yeah, started? Yeah, for, sure. <laughs> for sure. Let's um let's take a quick break here. I have known the owners of the Outdoorsmen in Phoenix for over 20 years. They are the authority on optics and hunting gear. Outdoorsmen is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods, mounting accessories, and pack systems for all hunters. Their customer service is the best in the business. Go to Outdoorsmen.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any Outdoorsmen's products. John, when you're talking about going on an out-of-state hunt, I'm curious, as far as your preparation, uh, if you could give me some tips on how you prepare yourself mentally and physically uh, you know, for those out-of-state hunts. And I know the fear of the unknown to a lot of people can be crippling, and I was curious how you, uh, how you prepare uh, on these out-of-state hunts that you're going on, or, or quite honestly, yeah. uh, out-of-state or in-state, just just yeah. hunts you're going on. I'm curious how uh, to pick your brain on, see how you prepare for that. Well, you said about the fear of the unknown. I'm going to start with that, and then I'll kind of circle back and, and give you you know some of the things that I do. Um, for me, I think the fear of the unknown is part of the fun of the adventure. You know, I kind of call myself an experienced hunter. I'm not a trophy hunter. I'm not a meat hunter. I'm out there for the experience of it. So win, lose, or draw, um, you know, I'm out there to experience the hunt. And I think that's enriched my hunting experience. And once I stop putting that pressure on myself to harvest an animal, um, that my hunting has gotten better. I've been more successful. Um, I've enjoyed myself more. Um, but I just want to get that aside. So, uh, like, actual, you know, preparation, um, I do a lot of uh, what I'll call cyber scouting. And I don't mean, you know, putting posts on Facebook and asking people where to go. Um, <laughs> you know, I use I use Google Earth. Um, you know, I look for bedding. I look for feeding, uh, travel corridors. I look for, um, you know, landscape features that would um, – hold, you know, game. Um, I use, there's an endless amount of tools on the internet now. 
Um, I, I use moon phase charts and stuff like that. I kind of try to plan my hunts with moon phase, uh, especially the early season hunts. Okay, um, so let's talk about – let me interrupt you here for a second. Mm-hmm. How do you look at the moon phase? What determines – what dates you decide to go, or is there a time when you don't want to be in the field if you have a choice, if your season is liberal enough, long enough that you can choose? What kind of cycle do you want? What kind of cycle do you not want? Well, it depends on the game, um, certain, and it depends on the time of year more than anything. Um, you know, if we're talking rut hunts, I'm I'm looking for um, – you know, half moon or less. If we're talking early, early season hunts, I try to avoid the full moon at all costs because if it's a really hot, arid environment, I you tend to, I, at least in my experience, I tend to see more uh, or shortened amount of diurnal or daytime uh, activity. Um, you will see sometimes in the midday you'll see a little bit of activity. They'll get up in the midday when there's a full moon or the moon is on their foot. But, um, you know, again, that's probably something we could probably talk about for hours, but I, I would say more, most important, I try to avoid full moons pretty much all the time. Um, and, and and not that I, I I do too, by the way, (laughs) not that I, I do too. Not that it's, you know, you can't harvest something with the full moon because I have. And, you know, there's sometimes you can't avoid it. Um, you know, I'm going this July, I'm going to, um, during the full moon for my blacktail hunt. Um, and I'm sure it's going to be hot and I'm sure it's going to affect some of my hunting, but you can still get it done. It's just not as good during the full moon. So um, I, it's always something I take a look at. Um, you know, as a, when I was, doing a lot of whitetail hunts. I, I, I used to keep notes about moon and I used to keep notes about barometer and all that stuff. Um, I've gotten a little lazy and I, I can't recall on that information without going to look at it, but I used to know it like in the back of my head, um, you know, what made deer get up and move and, and so on and so forth. Um, I, uh, you know, but I still look at those things and I'll go back and I'll look at my notes and I'll be like, all right, you know, this, this makes sense. Let's, let's, let's do this this day or just do that that day. And, you know, I'll wake up in the morning and, and see what the weather's doing and, you know, come up with a game plan based on that. But uh, as far as planning in advance, you know, there's only so many things you could pr- predict and so far out. So, but moon is one of them. So I always take a look at the moon. Um, you know, there's resources like, you know, go hunt, like, you know, you're one of your title sponsors there. Uh, they got great resources to figure out, you know, plan trips and so on and so forth. Um, the hunting channel online, uh, if you're a member of that, you have the hunting resource center and there's, you know, weather patterns, there's, uh, moon phase charts, there's, um, you know, all kinds of stuff and, and, and videos and tips and tactics and, you know, trying to help you plan your hunt and, and make it, you know, so that you're more successful. I try to take any resource that I have you know, I'll, I'll call biologists. I'll get a hold of the game warden in that unit if, you know, and, and pick his brain. Um, anything I could do to stack the odds in my favor, I'm going to. So. And as far as preparing, uh, mentally preparing physically, what are you doing a lot of times? Well, um, 
So I mentioned earlier when I went to Grand Canyon, I, I, I studied to become, you know, a physical therapist. So I, I did a lot of sports specific training and I, I've incorporated that and in i um, into my regiment, into my training, uh, you know, for, for archery specifically, um, not, not as much in, in the rifle shooting, but, you know, I've, I've developed like drills and stuff that I use and I'm going to back up a little bit here. I'm going to tell you basically what I do is I practice for the game. So if I'm going elk hunting, um, I know my shots are going to be from the ground. I'm probably going to be sitting on my butt or kneeling behind a tree. Um, you know, chances are I'll be, you could be shooting uphill or downhill. And I, I take those things and I try to mimic the most lifelike scenarios for the game that I'm going to hunt. And I practice that way. Um, you know, if I know I'm going tree stand hunting, I, I try to, you know, go find a tree, which is not really easy in Arizona, um, or not in Scottsdale anyway, uh, and, and go throw up a tree stand and I, and I practice from a tree stand. And, and if I know I'm shooting antelope, I, you know, I practice laying on my back and pop, you know, drawing full draw and pop up from, you know, a lay down position. And, you know, all the things that I know that I'm going to have to do to make it happen, I, I, I build drills. So like last year before my Ibex hunt, I got myself a 3d Ibex target and I went and shot tons and tons of steep uphill, downhill, you know, rocky, crazy stuff. And I don't just practice a shot. I practice stalking into position and shooting uh, because mechanics change, you know, when you're, when you're crawling on the ground and you, you, you try to, you know, draw from a concealed position and, and pop up and shoot. It's not the same as you standing in front of a, you know, four by four target, 40 yards in, in a, on a range, you know, it's just. You, you bring up a great point there of shooting uphill and shooting downhill. And when you were shooting at your Ibex target for those uh, people out there that, that maybe aren't as experienced with shooting at angles, what did you notice mainly, John? Well, um, I mean, I, I, I've kind of always, um, I, I caught on to the angle thing shooting out of tree stand long ago. So, most people tend to drop their arm to make the pin go where they want it to instead of bending at the waist. And when you're shooting downhill or uphill for that matter, you need to bend at the waist and still keep the top, the top part of your body as a T, you know, the archer's T. Um, because if you drop your arm or, or raise your arm, your anchor point, actually changes and you'll hit either higher or lower than you're really aiming. So that's, and as far as the arrow flight, um, shooting uphill or shooting downhill, um, how does the arrow perform? Um, you know, I, I didn't, I never really noticed any difference as far as performance of the arrow itself. Um, and, and nowadays what everybody's, uh, everybody's got, uh, angle compensated, um, you know, range finders and so on and so forth. Um, but before I had an angle, you know, compensating range finder, um, you know, it was, it was difficult judging what you needed to, you know, hold your pin at because, you know, the deer would be 30 yards away or whatever. And, and, you know, in actuality or 30 yards line of sight, but in actuality it was only 15 or, or 10 yards. Um, I had a, 
mule deer buck in Wyoming uh, back in uh, it was 2011, I think, or 2012. And um, my line of sight was 85 yards. And, you know, I'm like, all right, I can make this shot. And I shot for 85 yards. And this is with an angle compensating. It, I didn't know that it, it didn't compensate past 80 yards. It was an older model. Um, I shot five feet over him, <laughs> you know. Uh, so then I did it the old school way. I took the the angle and I did the cosine and everything. And my holdover was for 25. So, yeah, I mean, those are things that you don't know if you don't practice them or been out in the field. I mean, that could have been, and thank God it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't the trophy of my life. It was a, you know, 130 inch three by, you know, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't too broke up over it, but if it was a 200 inch mule or something like that, I might've, I might've turned the bow on myself that day. But, so. Well, and I think too, um, shooting uphill and downhill, your arrow is going to fly high. And, yeah. and I don't think people understand that or realize that. And like you said, if you practice for the situation, you know, situational practice, um, knowing, you know, at steep downhill angles, at steep uphill angles, your arrow is going to fly high. Um, and I think that's important to, to practice that and realize what's going to happen. And, you know, with the angle compensated rangefinders, it makes it a lot easier. Uh, but, but, but it's you know, still not an exact science because that's right. Yeah, shooting, especially shooting uphill. So shooting downhill, the arrow is picking up speed. But shooting uphill, the arrow is losing speed. So, you know, within 50 yards or whatever, yeah, it's not going to make a difference. But if you're trying to make, you know, 60, 70-yard shot, your your arrow is going to lose speed shooting upwards. So it, even though you're like – and I don't know, I don't know the exact math – um, and a lot of these, uh, you know, angle compensating do have the math, you know, algorithm in them and it does figure it out for you that even though it's 33 yards, you got to shoot for 36 yards or whatever. Um, and even, and the, you know, the line of sight's 40 yards and the holdovers there, you know, it's, it actually will figure it out. It's not exact. It's not exact difference between Shooting down is not the same as shooting up, basically, when you're talking yeah. about, well, even with a rifle, but rifles, you have to be a lot further to make it, uh, you know, make a difference because of the, the speed. So let's take, a, let's take a quick break here. Have you guys heard about PhoneScope? PhoneScope is a privately held company that makes custom molded, precisely engineered smartphone digiscoping adapters. Photographing wildlife has never been easier. Take digiscoping photos and videos from your smartphone and share them with your friends. PhoneScope stands behind their product with a 100% money-back guarantee. PhoneScope is the future of digiscoping. Get yours now. Use the JSCOT16 promo code and receive 10% discount on all purchases. Check them out at PhoneScope. That's P-H-O-N-E-S-K-O-P-E dot com or on Instagram at PhoneScope. Wilderness Athlete is committed to improving the health and quality of life for the outdoor athlete by providing field-tested, scientifically validated nutrition and sports performance products. Check them out at wildernessathlete.com 
and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any order. John, what are some of the, if you know, if you had to pick a story or pick a situation where, you know, one of the biggest mistakes you made on a hunt, what was it? How did you learn for it, from it, and how has it made you a better hunter um, from, you know, blowing a stock or missing a shot or whatever, whatever mistake you're going to about to tell me, mm-hmm. I want to, I want to get a takeaway from it. I don't know if I have one specific mistake of the millions that I've made in my uh, hunting career. Um, I think what's important is to take note of any and all mistakes that you make and store them so that when you're faced with that similar situation, you have something to pull from, uh, you know, to help you make the right decision. You know, oh, I've been faced with this before. Oh, I've seen that before. Um, I think that's what makes one hunter better than another is the ability to recognize that they've been in this similar situation before and how to react to it. Uh, I tell people all the time you need to be a student of the craft and always learn something, be sponge, absorb, like we were talking about earlier. Um, You know, I guess to circle back and answer the question, I'm thinking of an example. I... um, I was hunting in the Pine Barrens in, in Long Island uh, for whitetail. And I decided to do a rattling sequence. And I kind of did it half-assed. Um, and in my head, I remember saying to myself, oh, this isn't working. And I kind of hung up the, the horns and, you know, I was messing around. Like, I wasn't even, I didn't even look to see if a deer was coming in. I, I was messing around in my bag and stuff just because I mentally gave up. Um, and I lost focus. I let my guard down, and two seconds later, I look underneath the stand, and there's a big eight-point just stepped out of the brush, looking, staring right up at me because I was fiddling around with crap in my bag instead of being in the moment and following through what what I was doing. So I guess following through, you know, I've had this too, like spot and stalk, you know. Um, I remember one of my first big coos bucks that I ever put a stalk on I I fell going up the ridge, and I said to myself, oh, he's not going to be there anymore. He had to hear that. You know, I knocked a bunch of rocks. and So I kind of half-heartedly walked to the top, and I looked over, and sure enough, he was still there staring right up at me. And if I had a follow, had, you know, had, a, had a followed through with that and, and snuck up to the top, I may have gotten a shot at him. And, you know, that would have been my biggest – that would have been my biggest coos buck period because I have still yet to shoot one over 100 even with my rifle. Uh, and he was probably 115 pushing one. You know, I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I, I've seen similar situations in my own hunts and similar situations in guided hunts where, you know, something happens and you think mentally that the game is over. And I, I would you know, from listening to your story, I, I can totally relate. And I would say that I've had the same situations where if I would have been still engaged in the game and acting as if that buck was still right there until I know for a fact that he's not right there, uh, then your your chances of being able to get in position and make the shot. But you know, we've all done it where we think we've blown the stock and then all of a sudden, you know, the buck gets up and comes back over the ridge and gives you a second chance. Um, I can remember this last coos season in, in Mexico, we had a big buck and, um, shot was taken and, 
and the buck jumped up and we you know there were several several of us watching from different positions and no one could really tell exactly if the buck was hit and you know fortunately uh hunter uh hunter was uh, hunter haynes was uh, guiding with us and uh was able to you know stay in position with the hunter you know obviously reload the rifle and you know be ready and the buck went over the top of the ridge well um i was at a different vantage point up higher and dar was actually on the back side of the ridge and um dar's talking to me on the radio and saying you know th- th- this buck is it, he's coming back you're going to get a second chance and i mean you would think you shoot at a deer and, and, you know, he runs off and goes out of sight that there's no way he's coming back. Well, you know, he had does that were bedded down below him. He didn't know, you know, how many times have you heard a rifle shot and you have no idea where it came from? You don't even know which direction it came from. That's the same way when a deer gets shot at, uh, a lot of times they just know they're going to run away, but he had reason to come back and, you know, sure enough, came back over the ridge and, and the hunter was able to make a great shot on the deer and, and kill him. But, you know, that's just one example. I think another example for me is there's been many times when, um, I've taken my eye off of an animal, whether it's a coos deer, a mule deer, an elk, and, uh, you know, fiddle farted around and Mm -hmm. take my eyes off it, whether, you know, I've learned the hard way that if you ever take your eyes off an animal, likelihood is they're going to get up and move in that split second when you're, you know, running over to your pack or, you know, you got to get up to take a leak or, or even if you're just getting lazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dar and I, you know, we, we, you know, talk to our hunters constantly about keep your eye on the animal, period. Do not take your eye off, even if a buck's goes into a thicket and bedded down, um, you know, one of the things that I've learned in hunting with Dar so much is I know that if, if I'm stalking a buck that Dar is watching, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, hundred degrees out, if the wind's blowing or if it's super cold or if it's raining or whatever, he's watching. And if, if you can keep your eye on the animal at all times or have a spotter, your chances of efficiency, your chances of being able to get in position and get a shot at whatever it is, go way up. I, I see so many people that'll bet a buck down in the morning and they'll go, oh, we're going to go back for lunch and we'll come back in the afternoon. I mean, that rarely happens. Yeah, no, you know, not me. <laughs> stay on the buck. Don't take your eyes off it. You know, keep your eye on that bedded bull and, yeah. you know, let your shooter get in position um, you know, you know, even if you're, if you're not using radios, you're not using communication, yeah. at least you can leapfrog over to your buddy once he gets over into say a shootable position and, and you can get down to him. Cause you know, while you're moving, he's already got the buck. And you know, if you can never t- if you never leave your eyes, uh, wandering off of that animal you're after, your chances of harvesting go way up. Oh yeah, for sure. Absolutely. It's good to have good hunting partners, but you know, unfortunately that's not always the case, but I, uh, I agree with you. You know, it's just, I've, I've never put anything to bed. I actually, I very rarely put things to bed and even wait them out. When I put things to bed, I usually make a move on them. Assuming that the wind and everything is right, but sure. Let's take a quick break here. 
Utah Hydrographics is in the water transfer printing service and they are open to whatever you can dream up. Choose from a wide range of camel patterns, designs, and colors. Whether it's guns, bows, tools, rifle stocks, vehicles, steering wheels, fenders, dashboards, paint guns, fishing rods, cups, tripods, watches, knife grips, helmets for a local sports team or for your motorcycle, picture frames, mailbox, animal skulls, you name it, they can probably do it. Utah Hydrographics loves taking things that are general looking and turns them into something that looks fantastic and eye-popping. Give them a call and see what they can do for you and receive up to a 10% discount by using the J. Scott 16 promo code. Visit them at utahhydrographics.com or on Instagram at utahhydrographics. Whether you are interested in elk, deer, antelope, bighorn sheep, or moose, Western Hunter and Elk Hunter magazines will bring the adventure to your mailbox. These publications feature articles on the finest hunting gear, tips and tactics from experienced hunters, field judging trophies, glassing techniques, calling strategies, and much more. To become a more knowledgeable and skilled hunter, subscribe today. Go to westernhunter.net forward slash jscott and enter your email address for a chance to win a $1,500 credit towards any Swarovski product. John, I'm curious about that Ibex hunt. Uh, you mentioned, uh, I assume that was over in New Mexico, and was that an archery ibex? Yes, yes it was. And h- how was the outcome of the hunt? Did you get one? I did. Nice. That's, did. Uh, that's a low percentage success. Um, yeah. How many days did you put in, and how did it end up shaking out? Uh, I got him on day seven. Um, and, well... We released our film, so if anybody wants to go see it, uh, you can see it at thehuntingfilmfestival.com, um, and that'll tell the whole story. But I'll give you the the shortened version. Um, we were, you know, we were in them every day. Um, one of my good friends, uh, Dennis Kaufman, and uh, his partner Tim uh, Barclow, they uh, they own Kiowa hunting services and you know they helped me out he's he's actually the one who told me about um about the ibex and they got me interested in ibex uh many moons ago i'll I'll back up here and tell you the whole story um i was hunting i I drew a tag in new mexico for um for muzzleloader elk and i was hunting by myself nobody came with me and i was having a miserable trip uh, didn't hear bugle for two days. The first two days I was there, I was only there for three days. I couldn't, I couldn't spend much more time there. Uh, third morning, uh, you know, I made some adjustments, looked on some maps and moved into a different area. And I got on some, got on some elk, heard some elk and, uh, started moving towards bugles and got within 200 yards. And I hear boom and no more bugling. So I'm like, Oh geez, somebody just shot the bull that I was chasing. So I got in there and there was a, gentleman with a a youth hunter and standing over the bull that uh you know i would the beagles that i was chasing so i went down and introduced myself to him and turns out it was this gentleman dennis and he was him and the youth hunter were you know quite a ways from the truck so i ended up helping them pack out the elk and in return he's like john if you ever need any help i'm actually a guide um you know you ever draw another tag in in new mexico I'll help you out. 
well, I hadn't drawn another tag in New Mexico in 10 years until I drew this Ibex tag. So, um, he, uh, he helped me out with that a lot. They, they, or they helped me out with that a lot. They, uh, helped me out with some spotters and, uh, first couple of days they showed me around the mountain a little bit. And, you know, I, I, I probably couldn't have done it if I didn't have that. Um, it's a super, super tough hunt, but, um, back to the Ibex itself, um, on, uh, the sixth day I had shot another Ibex in the face. He came, there was five of them laying on top of each other in, in a crack, and I snuck under a ledge below them, and I drew back and stepped back from the from the wall, and they all busted out like hornets out of a hornet's nest, and I had one of my John is the awesomest archer moments fly through my head and um, shot him on the run, and shot him in the face, and um, I was devastated. We searched till 10 o'clock or something that night and couldn't find him. We picked up the trail and the next morning and I, we, we looked for him until like, I don't know, four o'clock or something. And I had just given up. We had just given up on looking and finding him. You know, we just chalked it up that he, you know, crap crawled into a hole and died or he's fine. I don't, you know, who knows? Um, and, um, we, you know, my cameraman actually that was down below uh radioed up and said hey there's a you know a billy working its way to the north end of the the mountain you know almost at the same level that you guys are not too far from where you shot the billy the other day so we kind of made a plan and got in front of him and you know he came down this rock face in front of me at 75 yards and i got a through and through um i had a little scare at first because the arrow went through and he busted off the broadhead with his opposite side leg um, and sheared, you know, sheared it off and the arrow popped out. And I was like, oh, my God, did I make, you know, that I hit him square in the shoulder and, you know, got poor penetration. But, you know, he didn't go, I don't know, as the crow flies, probably 70, 80 yards. Um, and uh, when we got there, I figured it out that I shot him all the way through and he just broke the arrow off and it was a good shot. <laughs> But I, I was, I was little, I was actually crying inside, thinking I wounded I'm another sure. one. <laughs> uh, and you got him? Yeah, got him. He's uh, number eleven SEI. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's an. I've heard that's just an unbelievable experience over there. It's the best. I'm actually planning on going for Spanish ibex this year as well. I haven't uh, solidified it yet, but I'm more likely that's going to happen. So awesome. Awesome. Well, it's been a uh, great to have you on the podcast here and uh do you have any concluding thoughts for me or any questions for me? Um concluding thoughts. I'm uh, just going to a, a message out to anybody who's listening, you know, we talked a lot about you know spending time learning, learning the game you're hunting, preparing um, you know, a smart man learns from his mistakes. A wise man learns from other people's mistakes. So don't let your ego get in the way. Ask questions. Try to soak up as much knowledge as you can from those who know better than you. Um, you know, I've shot a lot of animals in my life. Um, and I still, you know, will go hat in hand to somebody and, and, and ask for advice if I think they know better than me. So, um, yeah, that's it pretty much. 
You know, I think that's a great point. Um, and, and quite honestly, I'm curious about your thoughts on this. I mean, I learn stuff from people, whether it's hunting, whether it's fishing, whether it's life, business, what have you. I learn stuff from people that sometimes don't have as much experience as me, but I still learn something from them. Mm -hmm. And I, I think some of the most successful people out there, some of them are totally into doing their own thing. They don't want to ask advice. They don't want to take advice and they're going to, you know, do it their way. And that's one way to do it. And then there's a whole nother group of people out there that are willing to, like you say, set their ego aside and be able to listen and be able to ask questions and figure out that, uh, you know, maybe someone that's only been hunting for 10 years can teach someone that's been hunting for 30 years, uh, you know, something. And, um, you know, I think that's the great thing about our sports of, of hunting and fishing uh, is that, you know, everybody brings something to the table and everybody comes from different backgrounds. Everybody has different experiences and, you know, there, there's lots of things to learn. And, the, you know, you, you bring up a great point. The second that you stop learning, uh, you know, you're going to you're going to end up getting tired of the sport in my mind. You know, yeah. if if I'm not learning and I'm not, uh, you know, figuring new things out. Uh, you know, the passion for the, for whatever it is that I'm doing kind of just goes away. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't well, it's been that. awesome having you on. And uh, so Thanks what's your first me. hunt? You've got a blacktail hunt uh, in July and then yep. you've got some, some elk hunts and some deer hunts coming up. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be a pretty busy season. I, I, I mean, I have to make 12 shows a year, so I typically do 12, sometimes 13 hunts. Um, where are your, where is your show? Uh, where can people watch your show? A uh, number of places all online. Uh, you can watch it on the hunting channel online.com, uh, carbon TV. Um, and, uh, now you'll be able to watch it on the outdoor insiders.com as well. Uh, and it's days in the wild. So if you go to any of those, just do search days in the wild and you'll catch the show. Awesome, buddy. Well, I appreciate you coming on, spending some time with us, and uh, uh, people can also go to your website, johnstallone.com, correct? Correct. Yep. And uh, I appreciate uh, you spending time with us, and I uh, look forward to talking to you again, and uh, good luck on your hunts. And one of these days, we're going to have to bump into each other uh, living yeah. in the same city. I hang out with uh, Dar all the time at the archery club. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to have to uh, hook up and... Uh, uh, Sounds good. Yeah, well, maybe you should hook up with me uh, right about November 4th to November 10th in 5B. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm afraid, uh, I'm afraid I might be a mule deer hunting at that time. But, uh, <laughs> hopefully I'm going to draw an Arizona strip tag, but uh, we'll see. So uh, nice. take care, buddy. All right, take it easy.